It's the Sangamon Smith Report Show. Get ready. Genesis 16-bit arcade graphics. Welcome to the 60th episode of the Sagabit Swing and Report Show. Joining us for this episode is a very special guest, Mr. Al Nilsson, the former director of marketing for Sega of America during the Genesis era. Alongside Sega of America president Tom Kalinske, Al and the team at Sega defined the Sega Genesis for the U.S. and helped create what would become the video game industry's speediest icon, Sonic the Hedgehog. The full story can be found in Blake J. Harris's book, Console Wars, available May 13th. Pre-order today at Amazon.com. Now, the main event, our interview with Al Nilsson. Our Sega Bit Swing and Report show, and this is our 60th episode. Um, so it's, it's an honor to have you on for a milestone episode. And um, I guess this also kicks off a uh, round of interviews that we're going to be having with several folks who appear in the uh, Blake J. Harris book, Console Wars. Um, which stars yourself and Tom Kalinske, as well as many other Sega employees and Nintendo employees. Um, so I guess to, to kick things off, I wanted to ask, I know the book follows Tom's career. Uh, your early career isn't really touched upon as much. I wanted to know exactly um, what, what your years were like at Hasbro and Mattel. Um, Mattel was, uh, I was working on in television. I was, uh, doing advertising and sales promotion for the Intellivision video game system and all the games. So uh, working with George Plimpton and lots of wonderful promotions, uh, like where you buy X number of games and we actually gave you a free color TV. Uh, so those were wild and crazy days competing against Atari, who I had known very well. Before that, I had been a buyer for all the JCPenney stores and catalogs of video games and took them from being um, a smaller player in the video game business to the largest video game retailer at the time. Uh, wow. So those were fun. Um, at Hasbro, uh, was very interesting. I was working on a project called NEMO, which stood for Never Ever Mention Outside. Uh, and it was a live action video game system where instead of controlling you know, animated characters, you were actually controlling um, live video characters. And uh, unfortunately, the price of DRAMs escalated as we were developing it, so our $200 game system would have ended up costing $400, which just at that time would have, not, would have made it a non-starter. Uh, so we, we went and put that away and actually sold the software rights um, and the games Night Trap and Sewer Shark and the Make Your Own Music videos, those were all came out of um, the Nemo project and appeared on Sega CD as some of their launch titles. Wow. Uh, so a little synergy there. Uh, but that was good because uh, I, after Hasbro, this company called Sega came knocking on the door. Oh, and uh, you definitely answered because you uh, you went on to become what was, was your first role at Sega the uh, director of marketing position? 
yeah, it was basically, there was about four people at Sega. Uh, there was myself, and I was heading up marketing, Dave Rhodes heading up sales. Um, we had somebody who was a liaison with Japan on technical issues uh, and a controller. And that was basically what Sega of America was. And we were kind of also reporting into David Rosen, who was the founder of Sega at the time. And that's uh, what Sega of America was. Um, and we were the launch team for Genesis. My cats joined us. I joined in February of 89. My cats joined us, I think, in June or July of 89, uh, about four months later. Uh, so we were a very, very lean and mean operation. Um, and, and we had a major competitor. Our major competitor wasn't Nintendo because uh, they were you know, in the 8-bit business. Our major competitor was NEC with TurboGrafx. And you know, the retail buyers thought that NEC was going to basically clean our clock and eat our lunch and any other metaphors that you want to use because, oh, they had beautiful brochures and nice videos. Um, but we had phenomenal games and we just had great marketing that uh, really excited people. Uh, and we had one retailer who basically said that, you know, we'll carry your product. But on December 26th, we're going to go and return all of your products to you because NEC is going to be the victor. And the thing was, came December 26th, we were the victor. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I was, um, I'm not sure, George, do you remember that period of time? Uh, no, but my friend used to have a TurboGrafx-16. Um, I didn't really, I never really liked it, honestly. There's only a few games that were pretty good at on it. Yeah, I'll, I'll admit, I mean, I was, um, I was around seven or eight at the time uh, that was going on, and the Turbo Graphics didn't even make a blip on my radar as a kid. I didn't even notice it. Um, it actually wasn't until, and we'll, we'll get to it later, uh, the 1991 season that Sega really broke out, at least uh, as a kid for me, and, and I actually became aware of it. Um, I wanted to talk about the Genesis Does campaign uh, that was pre preceding uh, Tom Kalinske. I believe, correct? That that was right. That was a that was probably 1990, mid 1990. It was a few months before Tom joined us. My cats was uh, still president. Um, what we were wanted to do was, um, you know, we had NEC out of the way, and we knew that uh, we needed to go and start getting mindshare away from Nintendo. The other thing was for every dollar of marketing funds that I had. Nintendo had at least 10, uh, so it's hard to make your voice be heard. So we um, told our ad agency, Bozell, down in Los Angeles, that you know we were looking for something to really go and help differentiate us from Nintendo, differentiate you know an 8-bit NES system from the 16-bit Genesis system, um, and you know really go and play on our strengths. And I, I still remember flying down L.A. and meeting with them, and they, you know, went through the storyboard and you know showing you the various pictures. And um, you know, it was Genesis does, Genesis does, Genesis does, and we thought that was interesting and intriguing. And then they came to the end of the ad and held up this big board, and on the board it just said Genesis does what Nintendo don't. And we were just on the floor laughing. Um, 
it was it was just it, it hit the right note. It was memorable. Um, it really made you know a, a true strong uh, uh, statement against Nintendo and against the 8-bit system. Um, and it was a very successful campaign. And the amazing thing is, is that you know 20 some years later, people are still talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and, and I loved it a few years ago when. You know, Motorola with their or Verizon, I guess it was with their Droid phone, um, did the Droid Does campaign. Uh, you know, kind of harken back to Genesis Does. So mm-hmm. it, it was a really successful campaign at the time, and um, you know, helped to go and, and set us up uh, for what was going to happen once Tom Kalinske came on board, mm-hmm. uh, and. You know, help us as we were going to go and get ready for it. Though I have to say, Sega Japan was not very thrilled with the Genesis Does campaign. Uh, in Japan, competitive advertising just was not done, mm-hmm. uh, and they really didn't like us going and doing it. Um, and luckily, they didn't make us take it off the air, though we feared that they might. Um, but it, it had the impact that we needed at the time. I. I was under the impression reading the book that, I mean, communication isn't what it is now that it was then. So did you find it to be an advantage having an ocean between you so you could you could do certain things and get right down to the wire and then it just was like, you know, a phone call to Japan and you'd say, well, we, we have this campaign going out and uh, we can't really pull the plug at this point. I mean, was it that easy to get away with these sorts of campaigns that – Japan might not have wanted. I don't know if easy is the is the best term. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that didn't happen was it wasn't easy to be able for them to go and see a campaign. Mm-hmm. So you know they might be able to see storyboards or hear what it was about. And um, you know our our main conduit between Sega Japan and uh, Sega of America was Shinobu Toyota, who was our executive vice president. Uh, and, you know, you'll, you'll hear or you'll read in the book that, you know, some people thought, oh, is, you know, he, you know, basically a plant from Sega Japan because he had been hired by our, our president of Sega Japan, Mr. Nakayama, um, to work for us. But he really believed in what we were doing and uh, really helped to go and, uh, ease our way in and find ways to go and um, uh, let us do what we needed to do and kind of, you know, ask forgiveness later. Um, and so it, 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 he was a major part of helping us deal with Sega Japan. Um, the other thing you have to remember is we were just running full out, uh, dare I say, at blast processing speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, go and um, uh, accomplish what we were doing. We were a very lean organization throughout the company uh, and uh, trying our hardest to go and do whatever we wanted to, uh, whatever we felt was needed to do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the, um, while we, you know, worked to go and keep Japan informed, um we also needed to go and make sure that we were just running our business to the best possible way. 
mm-hmm. and so with Shinobu's help and everything else. And the nice thing about it is what we were doing was working. And, you know, sales, especially in 91, just, you know, started doubling and then tripling. Um, and, you know, that helped grease the skids with Japan a, a whole lot more. Uh, you know, nothing sells like success. Mm-hmm. Uh, celebrity endorsements were very important in the early days. Uh, did did that at all contribute to Sonic's creation where you needed to create your own celebrity rather than having to always reach out to the likes of Michael Jackson and Joe Montana and Buster Douglas? You know, I, I think they aren't to the exclusion of each other. Um, you know, in, in sports, you want to go and have the Joe Montanas of the world, uh, the Buster Douglas of the world until he lost, um, you know, and Arnold Palmer for golf and things like that. So you really can't go and make a, you know, make your own character up um, to go and be able to uh, achieve the same thing. In music, there's only one Michael Jackson. Uh, so that's in a class by itself. The goal, of course, is to, you know, have yourself a major icon to be able to go and do that. And, you know, I, I still remember the day when, um, you know, Shinobu Toyota walked into my office and closed the door and said, Sega has been working on their own mascot. They've come down to two choices. And since it has to succeed in the U.S., uh, you know, we're letting you go and make the choice. Um, and, you know, when I first heard that, it was kind of like, okay, you're going to go and come out with, we're going to try to make a, a mascot um, that's as powerful or even better than Mario. You know, that's a major task. Uh, so needless to say, I was skeptical when I heard that. And then... He opened this manila envelope and pulled out two uh, drawings. And the first one was kind of uh, uh, very much Japanese animation derived. um, And they were like these little eggs um, that were animated. And uh, my initial thought was weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. Um, and while I, I understood how they would work in the Japanese marketplace in the U.S., they would just come off as very preschool, uh, and so not something that would have broad appeal. And you know, the second one was a hedgehog. You know, first of all, what's a hedgehog? And in the U.S., we we know groundhogs. We really don't know hedgehogs. Secondly, he was blue. Uh, third, he had a rock band. And fourth, he had a girlfriend who looked like Marilyn Monroe and was named Madonna. Um, And, you know, it was Sonic the Hedgehog um, emblazoned across the the top. And it was like, uh, literally, it was the least of two evils. It was like, what are these? And there was no gameplay. And that's what it all comes down to is, you know, what are you going to do with these characters? Not just what does the character look like. You know, what's mm-hmm. the gameplay like? What's going to go and excite people? What's going to make them want to return? And so I said, you know, go with Sonic um, and, um, you know, get rid of the rock band and get rid of Madonna. Um, he also had fangs at the time. We, I, I didn't say defang him. It was enough going and just um, uh, getting rid of the rock band and Madonna. 
but the I I didn't expect to go and you know have, see anything come from it. It was just one of those decisions, uh, mm-hmm. and you know the the only two people at SOA who saw it were my cats and myself, uh, and and I don't think my cats was too thrilled at the time either, um, you know. But then fast forward a few months, and I'm in Japan, in the R and D group, and I see Sonic for the first time on the dev systems, um, and it was actually in black and white. It wasn't even color, and didn't have the wonderful backgrounds and. Here's this guy just racing at top speed, and I've never seen anything move so fast in a video game. And I was taken over to a couple of other monitors, and there were these incredible multicolored backgrounds. And I was like, okay, this goes with this, and they're going, yep, that's what it is. And it was like, this is just incredible. And it was like, they did it. You know, there's the opportunity for this, and you know, it wasn't playable. Uh, and I just, I couldn't, you know, wait to go and say, you know, when can I play? When can I play? Because there was, there was something there, uh, which was just incredible. And the rest is history. Yeah. I, I've spoken with, um, a lot of friends of mine who, you know, who love the classic games and, you know, you, you strip Sonic of, you know, any of the character design or anything. It's just a really awesome concept of being able to, almost these pinball-like physics in a platformer. It, it's something that Mario never really quite did, and it's uh, it's fascinating, but it's really the, the design and the gameplay together that really made it a hit. Um, but what, what were any of your contributions towards redesigning Sonic once uh, Tom came on and you really started to take it seriously as this, this could be the next mascot? Well, you know, we we basically went and Tom and Madeline Schroeder, who was product manager, worked for me, uh, who we now affectionately call the mother of Sonic. And Sonic was, um, you know, her responsibility um, for titles. And we sat down and, you know, looked at it. And, you know, Tom came from very much a character-driven um, uh, business at Mattel, you know, he, he redefined what Barbie was. He created Masters of the Uni- He-Man and Masters of the Universe uh, and understood what characters were all about. And, and we looked at Sonic and, you know, here, if you want to go and, and have a character um, who's going to go and be your mascot, you want the character to be approachable, especially if you want boys and girls, men and women, you know, ages three to 93. And Sonic just had too much of an edge. There was, there was an aggressiveness to him. Um, and the fangs definitely didn't help. Um, you know, I love calling Madeline Sonic's orthodontist, uh, cause she was the one who had to go and, and, you know, tell, uh, Japan, get rid of the fangs. Uh, and so, you know, we, we talked about various, you know, different ways to um, kind of make him less aggressive uh, and, you know, more, uh, I, I don't want to say lovable, but approachable and more, you know, wow, I can really identify with this character. Um you know, the gameplay is cool. We want him to be as cool as possible. Um, you know, and what was interesting was then um, 
the Sonic team and Naka started going in and giving him an attitude as opposed to, you know, the, this aggressiveness and this edge. Um, you know, the best example is the tapping of the toe when you're not, you know, pushing down on the, one of the buttons. And he, he's saying, in effect, my name is Sonic. That means speed. Let's start playing. Uh, and, you know, we took the idea of the attitude and started writing his backstory. And uh, we put together, you know, what's called the Bible, which is the entire backstory of the character, what the character does and doesn't do, um, all of the characters they interact with, uh, his enemies, you know, Dr. Robotnik, Etc. And establishing, um, you know, what what is Sonic's personality and the personalities of the other characters. Um, and so it, it really was a joint effort between Madeline and Tom and myself uh, to really help go and define it. Um, needless to say, it was um, it, it took a bunch of convincing uh, of the Sonic team because it was like. This isn't necessarily what we had designed, um, but uh, with a lot of perseverance and also with a lot of help from Mr. Nakayama, um, it was, we need this to succeed in the U.S. because the U.S. is the biggest market in the world. Um, and, um, you know, let's follow their lead. And especially, you know, uh, Tom being there was a major help because um, there was, there's no one around who knows characters and character development better than Tom. You talked about how uh, your input on Sonic the Hedgehog changed the character, the marketing. Uh, what's your opinion on the new uh, take on the Sonic characters in uh, Sonic Boom? Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, I haven't seen the animation. I've just seen, seen the trailer and that. You know, it, it's been interesting to go and watch. Um, you know, I, I find it... Um, won't say I, I, I have... I like it. It's... Um, I want to see more of it. I'd love to see, you know, some of the animation. Uh, I'd love to see one of the shows that uh, is being done. Uh, it's actually being done by one of uh, my former colleagues at Viacom and Nickelodeon. Uh, so I'd, I'd love to see the whole thing. But my initial comment from just seeing, you know, the 90-second uh, trailer for it was positive. Uh, though I have to say, you know, my heart belongs to the original classic Sonic. Um, that's, that's Sonic to me and always will be. Uh, because that was the Sonic that, you know, broke through all the barriers, but, um, you know, and I, I, I understand, um, you know, the need to go and change and to evolve. And I think it's, uh, uh a nice evolution that they've done with Sonic. Uh, I want to see more about it, but, uh, you know, give me the original Sonic any day of the week. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's interesting too, in the book, I remember you, you guys were afraid of having a, SOJ Nick the the Hedgehog and SOA Nick the Hedgehog, you know, having two distinct, having the Bang rock band one still existing in Japan and having your uh, ideal one in America. And I'm, 
I kind of get that vibe off of Sonic Boom. I don't want to focus on it too much. I know it's a project you haven't worked on, but you can definitely see a little bit of a similarity there. Yeah, you know, the, it, it just doesn't make sense to, you know, especially the goal was to go and create, you know, Sega's Mario, and you need something with worldwide appeal. Uh, you know, we were developing a product not just for Sega of America, SOA, but also SOE, Sega Europe, um, though we were, we were the ones who were guiding it. And also for the Japanese market and the Latin American market and all of Asia. Um, and also, you know, I'm sure on Mobius, Sonic's very popular. Uh, so it's, you have to go in and uh, you can't go and, you know, have multiple Sonics. Um, you can't have multiple, you know, characters. Otherwise, it gets confusing. Uh, people go and say, what is this? What is that? Um, and, um, you know, SOJ and Mr. Nakayama understood that, um, and, you know, who benefited? Everybody benefited. You know, it became not only, you know, exactly what they wanted, which was, you know, Sega's Mario, or some people will say Sega's Mario Killer, uh, but it also became, you know, the best-selling product in every single market that it was introduced in. Uh, it did exactly what it was supposed to be, uh, which, uh, you know, is was hard for us to believe. You know, if you go back to, you want to go and, and start from scratch with the idea of having, you know, something that is uh, as big an icon as Mario, um, and they did it. And, you know, my hat's off to Naka and the whole Sonic team. Um, it, it was just the right product with the right concept, with the right game design, with the right characters, with the right story, uh, and at the right time in terms of development. Because uh, you always, you know, as, as you uh, go through the development of the gaming system, um, you know, I don't think we could have done Sonic as a launch title because you don't know enough about how the development systems work. Uh, so it was absolutely the right product at the right time. Yeah, Sonic really did feel like a, a ref, like refreshing the Gen Genesis brand. When I when I came into it, I was really not aware of the 1989 and 1990 games that were releasing. It was really just there's this new console that has just lowered in price. My dad is able to afford it and it has this really cool fast Sonic game on it. So I actually, I was, I was one of those kids in 1991 that got Sonic the Hedgehog one bundled with the Genesis for Christmas. Oh, um, very cool. So, yeah. yeah so it, I mean, it, you know, how we look at it is that Sonic really defined what 16 bit was. Uh, and, and, and that, that, you know, this is what 16 bit is capable of. And this is really, you know, the emblem for what the 16-bit generation is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if I could have my Sega fan moment, even though I didn't know, you know, your name or Tom's name at the time, I mean, you guys were definitely responsible for me becoming a, a Sega and a Sonic fan and getting my first uh, game console in 1991 just because the price was right for my dad, <laughs> so... So thank you. Well, you know, well, 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 thank you for buying it. You know, it's, uh, you know, one one of the you know things is is 
you know, on Christmas 1991 and 1992, you know, I knew how many units we sold and it was just, you know, the idea of, you know, kids, uh, you know, opening presents under the Christmas tree and all of these Genesis units and Sonic units that were out there and they were opening them. And it was just, it put a big smile on my face and I know it put a big smile on everybody else in Sega. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for buying it. Oh, you're welcome. And I, I still have it hooked up. It's about two feet away from me. It's the same the same console still working today. You can't really say that about a lot of the, the newer stuff coming out. They they seem to break down after a few years, but the Genesis is still going. Genesis does. <laughs> it sure does. So uh, you had a lot of really interesting campaigns uh at your during your time at Sega. Um I wanted to talk about, and George knows about this one quite a bit, the Sega Star Kid Challenge at Universal Studios. That was quite the event. Uh, I didn't catch it on TV, but I've revisited it via YouTube not too recently. And uh, not too Yeah. Was that, George? I was going to say, the whole show is up on YouTube to stream. Yeah. What what was that like, putting that together, and uh, just the whole event? What was the, the vibe that you had? Well, you know, as I said, one of the things that we were looking at was um, Nintendo just had so much more money than we did to market. And so we needed to go and figure out what were ways that we could go and get the Sega name out there, get some cool out there, um, borrow people's cool um, in whatever way we could. And, you know, it was... Um, in terms of advertising, we did a little bit of advertising in prime time, but not very much because it was very expensive. So we did a lot of local advertising. We did a lot of syndicated programs and things like that, but we were still looking for bigger and better ways to break through. Uh, and Richard Rubsek, um, who just produces um, a variety of TV programs, came to us with this idea for the you know, Sega Star Kids Challenge and said, you know, um, we can go and get, you know, the kids from all of the hot TV shows that are on the air right now and bring them to a place like Universal Studios and put them through just, you know, a variety of, um, you know, competitions, kind of like the old Battle of the Network Stars um, and integrate Sega into it. And then it gets, you know, uh, played on syndication throughout the country on various stations. Uh, And they told us about how Sega would be integrated into it, what we could go and do with Sonic. That's there. Um, We looked at what he had done and there were the production values were solid. Um, And it, it really it really made sense from both a strategic standpoint, from a monetary standpoint, from an impact standpoint. Uh, And so we said, yeah, let's go and do it. Uh, And they recruited just a a phenomenal uh, roster uh, of kids. And, um, you know, it it was a great day um, going down. It was actually two days at Universal Studios in Hollywood. Um, and utilizing the various sets and attractions. So, you know, things were set up on, I guess, the Miami Vice set and on the 
Wild West um, stunt show, and I can't remember all the, the rest of it. So, you know, Universal wanted to show off their place. We wanted to show off Sega. And the great thing was it was, um, you know, all of these kids who were gamers and uh, who loved Sega having a great time. And, you know, so it, it was a nice marriage between, you know, all of those various pieces. Uh, and, it, and it really worked well. Uh, and, and it was it, it was. Um, you know, it helped, it, it was more impactful than just running, you know, a 30 second commercial. Um, in fact, in a, in a bunch of markets, it was, you know, not just shown once, but a couple of times. Uh, so you'd get a couple of bites at the apple. So it's like a traditional ad campaign, if you did some print and some commercials, would that be equitable in price to this or did these like something like the Sega star kit, challenge thanks to the cross promotion did that like you said like did that save you some money versus nintendo's uh spending uh, i'm not sure it's apples and oranges to go and say you know is this equivalent to a tv ad and you know i, I could probably talk ad nauseum about you know tv economics and things like that um one the the big thing as i said was nintendo because they had so much money, they could go and run a whole lot more in prime time, you know, on the big shows on the networks from, you know, eight to 11. And, and you have to remember back at this time, you know, it, you didn't have all the choices. It was basically ABC, NBC, and CBS. Fox didn't exist. And you didn't have, you know, 500 cable channels to go and watch. Uh, and so it was, you know, what were on the networks, you know, from eight o'clock to 11 o'clock, Monday through Friday. Um, and but those were very very expensive. Um, so we we the big thing about everything we did at Sega was what can we do to really go and maximize our dollars? What can we really do, um, you know, to make um, you know something um, have a have a tremendous impact that we could talk about in PR that could go and you know do stories about it because, you know, you can run stories in newspapers about, um, uh, you know, X, Y, Z of, you know, full house or tool time, um, you know, is doing this big Sega superstar kids challenge. And so, you know, it, it's getting out in more, it, it, it's what starts as a TV show all of a sudden becomes part of a PR campaign and starts making it look um, bigger and better, which is what we always try to do. We always try to take an idea and figure out ways to make it even bigger, even better, uh, expand it into ways that we had never thought of before. Uh, and, and that was able to go and, and you know, get our message out uh, in unexpected venues, you can't mm -hmm. do that with a TV commercial. You know, the um, a TV commercial runs for 30 seconds or 60 seconds or 15 seconds, and then it's over. Um, but and but they're very important, especially because they get to show you know what gameplay looks like, and that's what everybody wants to see. What's the game look like? Uh, this is all about getting the Sega name out there, showing off some of your hottest games being played, 
by, you know, the kids and the teens that America loves and watches every week. Um, you know, and, and I use the term borrowing their cool. People thought mm-hmm. they were cool. Well, if they're being seen, you know, playing Game Gear or Genesis or just having fun with Sega in the background, um, then I guess Sega is pretty cool. Uh, you know, and, and we, we did that in a lot of ways. And, and when we, you know, started going and working with Nickelodeon to um, not just do advertising, but, you know, we introduced Sonic with the slime time sweepstakes. You know, what's better on Nickelodeon than getting slimed? Well, you know, having Sonic and slime brought together. Uh, and so, you know, th- those are ways where we can go and, and help uh, everybody say, not only does Sega, you know, have great games, but, you know, they're really the company I want to be associated with. And, that, and that's what it was all about. It, did you ever get slimed? I actually got slimed. Yes, I actually got slimed. I got slimed like, at a Nickelodeon I event. To get slimed. Uh, I was going to. It was fun. It's it 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 is it is a little messy, but I. But you know the thing is, is Steven Spielberg got slimed. Al Nelson got slimed. I'll take that. There we go. <laughs> um, I was going to ask you. You said that you guys would do like smaller uh, things to get you know the Sega brand name out there. Do you remember doing? Do you remember the magazine you guys used to give away called the Sega Vision? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Sega Visions was, um, you know, a, a magazine that we put out, and I forget how often it was, uh, every other month or quarterly. Uh, and this was a way for us to go, you know, and and show off our best side to. Uh, our most loyal users. And we started by sending it out to Sega Master System owners. Uh, And the Sega Master System owners were probably our most loyal and most vocal supporters, you know, in the early days in 1989 and 1990, because, you know, Nintendo had 95% market share. The Master System only had 5%. And a kid who owned a Master System had to be pretty vocal to his friends who were Nintendo owners about why the Master System was the best choice. Uh, so we started sending out Sega Visions to um, you know the Master System owners, and then as Genesis buyers, we kept adding it to them. And it was you know giving not only telling them what was new and cool, but also you know giving them kind of ammunition where they could go and say. Yeah, I know you love your NES, but you know, here's why Sega is so cool. And so it was it was a direct communication there. Um and, and it was a really good publication. Uh we had to just continue it because it, it just became too expensive for us to do, you know, such a, a large magazine and send it out to, you know, you know, millions of people. Um and uh, you know, we had a good team that was working on it. But it, it it just became a cost that we couldn't afford anymore because uh, there there were better venues for our marketing dollars. It was fun. On the subject of uh, campaigns that made a real big impact and uh, comparisons, the mall comparison tour that you did, I believe it was called the Sega <laughs> World Tour. Uh-huh. Uh huh. With Ellen uh, Beth Van Buskirk, I believe that's her Ellen, name. EBBB. EBBB. Ellen Beth Van Buskirk. Um, what was that like? 
Well, you know, it's um, – and you can read all about this in console wars in great detail, but I, I can give you the, you know, the nickel uh, uh, version of what's happening. You know, it, it all started when um, Super Famicom came out in Japan and Sega Japan managed to get two um, uh, units – and they kept one for themselves, and they air freighted one over to us at SOA, and you know opened it up and played it, and you know it it, it was good, and you know playing Mario three and Super Mario World, and I, I took it home over the weekend, and it was like, yeah, this is really nice. It's got some nice you know new things to it, but it was. Mario. It wasn't new and exciting, and Mario was, you know, as dare I say, slow as ever. Uh, you know, though, and the graphics, you know, weren't as exciting and as beautiful as as uh, Sonic was. Um, but they had all these colors, um, and as I was playing it that first weekend the words that kept coming through my brain over and over again was 12-bit Mario. It, because I knew, you know, Sonic hadn't come out yet. Sonic was still eight months away and nobody had seen it because we knew that we had something special and I basically put a lid of secrecy down on it and got SOJ to agree that nobody outside Sega would be allowed to see Sonic the Hedgehog. Um, though they wanted to show it to everybody because they knew they had something magical and they hoped that that could go and increase, you know, Mega Drive sales in Japan. But, you know, they, they agreed with us that this is too secret. Let's go and hold it, uh, for the right time and introduce it at the right time. But, you know, so I knew what we had, um, which was kind of, as I said before, defining what the 16-bit generation was about. And Mario, while, you know, very good, and it was wonderfully leveled, it was great gameplay, it was, you know, what Nintendo does so well. Um, it just wasn't up to the standard of what Sonic was was about. And when I told that to Tom Kalinske, he got excited about it. But what Tom loves to do is say to me and say to others, prove it. And um, we had to go and, you know, it's like, how do you want me to prove it? Because, you know, it's like you have to go and prove that Sonic is better than Mario. Um, and after thinking about it, it was like, well, you know, the, the name of the game is the game. So let's let people go and actually play the two of them and see what it's about. So we did some secret uh, play tests around the country. So making sure that, you know, just because Californians might like it, see what everybody else liked and let them play, you know, Mario, uh, Super Mario World on Super Famicom and Sonic the Hedgehog and then tell us which one they chose. And nobody had seen Sonic the Hedgehog before and nobody had seen Super Mario World before because it was only available in Japan, though they knew and loved Mario. And the other thing was I wanted to make this test even harder and show that it was even bigger victory. So the majority of people that we had um, do the play tests 
were Mario lovers. And if you can convince a Mario lover that, you know, Sonic was better, we knew we had a big win. And the great thing was, was after the play tests were done, 80% of the people preferred Sonic over Mario. And we knew we had a win. Uh, so it was like, how do you go and make this bigger and how do you go and take it? And so, you know, the first thing was at the Consumer Electronics Show, when Nintendo was heralding, you know, here's Super NES and, you know, forget about all the rest of the systems. This is the real deal. In our booth, I had two monitors and one was hooked up to uh, Sonic playing and the other was hooked up to a Super Famicom playing Super Mario World and letting people come and choose for themselves. You know, and I had one reporter come up to me and said, Super Nintendo has 32,768 colors. You only have 512. What are you going to do about it? And I walked him over uh, to the wall and I said, which one has 32,768 colors? <laughs> and, you know, he kind of went as pale as Mario uh, because, you know, it's not how many colors you have. It's what you do with them. Uh, and then once we saw the success of that, and I don't think Nintendo was too happy that we were, you know, usurping their launch, I said, well, I'm a nice guy. What can I do? And why don't I introduce Super NES um, for Nintendo? And so that's how the mall tour got uh, started, where, you know, two months before Super NES would launch, we would let people play Super NES for the first time in a head-to-head -head competition um, with Mario uh, and, and Sonic. And then afterwards, asked them to vote for which one it was. And we started in Nintendo's backyard. Uh, Peter Main, uh, Nintendo's uh, vice president of sales and marketing, actually went and attended it. I don't think he was too happy. And uh, Ellen Beth Van Buskirk, um, we had just hired and she ran the mall tours and uh, it did exactly what it was. It went and said, you've been hearing the hype about Super NES. Well, you know, you go and take the taste test. Um, you know, which do you prefer, Sonic or Mario? And, you know, uh, some reporters went and said, ah, you're just going to go and skew the results. You'll tell us whatever you want to tell us. So we invited reporters in and said, why don't you be the official judge? and make sure that everything's being done. And, you know, the first week there was an over 80% preference uh, in Nintendo's backyard uh, for mm -hmm. Sonic over Mario. And in fact, the highest preference for Sonic over Mario was actually in Nintendo's backyard, which made it even sweeter. And so it really was an unbiased, uh, just showing it to them that there was, despite Nintendo being mad, it wasn't as though you guys were, you know, thumbing your nose at them while people were playing. You were just presenting to them. Uh, both consoles to them, correct? Well, even more important, it wasn't showing it to them. It was letting they them play actually it. playing it. Yeah. Okay, because it's one thing to go, because then they can go and say, ah, you just picked the good bits. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no. Before you could vote, you had to play both games. <laughs> and then we asked you to vote, and you just circle, I prefer Sonic or I prefer Mario. And, that's brilliant. You know, it's they. That's what they wanted, and, uh, and also once again, it's it was a way to go and make the story even bigger because 
every week we issued a press release saying, you know, St. Louis chooses Sonic over Mario. Seattle chooses Sonic over Mario. And Sonic did not lose in one market. Mm-hmm. And there was no preference lower than 75% for Sonic. Wow. Wow. And I mean, it, it definitely helped considering it was truly a fantastic game. There was nothing to hide. Um, when you were moving into uh, 1992 and you knew that, you know, Sonic had worked once um, and you were moving in and there was going to be Sonic 2, uh, did you did you see the need to do these comparison tours again or did you really feel that just there was enough anticipation now based off of the first game that you could just go in with the Sonic Tuesday promotion? I, I hate to go repeat anything that uh, I've done in the past. Uh, I get more excited when people go and do something, when copy what I've done. You know, it gave me kind of a, a, a you know, a little bit of a smile when all of a sudden there was Mortal Monday following up Sonic Tuesday. You know, it's like I want to go and be on to the next big thing that people are doing. It's also the objectives are a whole lot different. Yeah. You know, Sonic had been Sonic had been firmly established as uh, just a great character and great gameplay. And so what could we go and do that's special? And we knew it was going to go and be our best-selling game of 1992, but there were other important things behind it because it's not enough for people just to go and buy um, the Sonic 2 cartridge. Um, the important thing about great games is that great games sell hardware, bring new users into the marketplace. Uh, and so therefore we knew that Sonic 2 could really go and uh, help us go and uh, become the leader of market share over Nintendo. Uh, and we had a great lineup of other software, but we knew that Sonic was leading the way. Uh, of course, there's trepidation, you know, whether it's in movies or in video games. Sequels are not necessarily, you know, as great as the original that people have come to love. Uh, so we had trepidation. Um, and it was also very different. So we had brought the Sonic team over to America um, and to go and develop Sonic 2. And basically the only person who interacted with them from Sega of America was Madeline. We wanted to make sure they were not disturbed. Uh, we just wanted them 100% focused on developing the great game. And I loved every month, you know, going to Japan and seeing the latest uh, build of Sonic, even before we had builds sent over to us in America to look at. And it was like, I just had to keep waiting for builds and Madeline bringing back videotapes and things like that. So it was like, tell me about it. Tell me about it. How good is it? Is it any good? You know, uh, is it okay? Because we really didn't know what we have. But then we started seeing, you know, this wasn't just going to go and be a, you know, simple copy of Sonic 1. The team was making them faster. They was It was bigger. Uh, it looked better. It had new uh, bonus levels. It had new zones in it, uh, and it re- and uh, lots of new features. And so it wasn't just a worthy successor to Sonic One. It was, you know, uh, going. It was on the road to becoming uh, just as big um, a revelation 
of what 16-bit can do as the original Sonic was. And it was truly uh, taking it to the next level, even though we didn't know that Welcome to the Next Level was a phrase yet. Um, but then as, as we started going to, um, you know, understand this, it was like, what can we go and do to make this not just the number one cartridge of the year, but a phenomenon? What can we do to make, you know, everybody in America, one, know about this, anticipate it, want to buy it, got to have it, got to have it now. No, mom, no, dad, you don't, you aren't going to get me a Super Nintendo, you're going to get me a Sega Genesis. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I want. And that, that's what it was all about. Uh, and, you know, Madeline and I worked together uh, on putting together a marketing plan. And I have to admit, it was, you know, the, the most ambitious and the biggest and best marketing plan ever done for a video game. But as you'll read in the book, mm -hmm. as we were getting ready to, you know, present it to, um, you know, the rest of the management team, um, it just wasn't good enough. It wasn't big enough. And, and. Uh, I love things that just are beyond, you know, bigger than big and have never been done before. And um, this, it just didn't feel big enough, even though, as I said, it was the marketing plan was nothing like had been seen in the video game industry, but it just wasn't good enough. And I wasn't happy about it. And I was just so frustrated. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it got a little heated uh, just because of my frustration and I didn't have the answer. And then all of a sudden it was like, what can be bigger than, you know, making this a global event uh, and make putting a street date, which hadn't been done because you, you couldn't trust the retailers as soon as if they got it in, you know, a month in advance or a couple of weeks in advance, they put it on sale. And mm -hmm. we didn't want anybody to have the game until the day that the game would be available. But that was a logistical nightmare. Um, and out of that, it was, this came this idea for, you know, a street date and Madeline and I started playing around and, you know, what day do we want to do it? And it's like Sonic two, what date should it be? And, and then it was like Sonic two, Sonic Tuesday. And that just, you know, set us off into a whole new direction. So we took everything that had been planned for, you know, the launch and then added that onto this idea for a global launch. Uh, and for a whole, you know, we started advertising and pre-promoting and teasing Sonic 2, um, you know, probably about three months before the product ever shipped. And then we did pre-orders. Uh, and figured out logistical problems so that we literally were air freighting into every retailer door in America. Uh, and we got the retailers behind us. And it's, um, it was just an incredible thing where every department within Sega uh, did their best. Uh, this wasn't just a marketing thing. This wasn't just sales. It was operations. It was finance. It was accounting. 
they all had to go and do things that they had never done before. The retailers had to do things they had never done before. And then we had to coordinate with Japan and Europe to get them to do it. Um, and, you know, when the dust cleared, Sega was number one in market share and Sonic was the number one um, game of the year. Wow. And it really, it really did revolutionize the industry then, because was this truly the first um, nation, at least going just looking at America, nationwide launch for a title, a video well, game the, title? It, it was the, it was, we call them street dates. You know, a movie. You know, you'll you, you see, you know, coming May sixteenth, uh, yeah. because that's easy. It's you know, you, you send the film out, and the, and that, that's when they start showing it. But what happens when you, you know, there's 13,000 retailers out there, you know, uh, that you have to go and ship product to and you can't do it. You know, you ship it by truck and whatever. And so it's sitting in the back room, you know, with stickers on it that says don't open till X, Y, Z date. The problem is, is, you know, a, you know, store manager of uh, some chain in, Dubuque says, you know, I, I can't wait to go and play this. I'm going to go and put it on sale now. And then all of a sudden it starts leaking out. And then the guy on the other side of the mall says, hey, he's selling it, so i got to sell it too. And then everybody in the city and everybody in the state. And all of a sudden, you know, all of your well-laid plans are uh, out the door. And the only solution would be to literally, you know, ship them so that they arrive the night before so that uh, they can go on sale the same day. The problem is, is it's so much more expensive um, to go and do. You know, it's 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 the difference between sending something, you know, via the U.S. mail and sending something overnight via FedEx. Um, but we work closely uh, with Emory Air Freight, uh, and we were able to go and get the cost to be almost the same as sending it by truck. Um, and it was the largest, um, shipment in the history of air freight, uh, to so many doors and everything like that. And if, if our operations people, um, uh, weren't able to go and pull that off, we could never have pulled this off. Um, you know, and, and because otherwise, you know, when Sonic one came out, you know, Stores, you know, closest to our distribution center would get it on Tuesday and stores, you know, with some stores would get it on Wednesday and Thursday and some stores, you know, on the other side of the country wouldn't get it for a week or so. So you you couldn't go and, um, you know, advertise it and promote it and do it something as big. So this, this really changed the way things are done. Um, now, when you look at it, it's finally... Um, this is the way video games are being sold, you know, with street dates, um, because the retailers have implemented systems to, you know, prevent, um, you know, that guy in, in, in that mall from going and saying, I'm going to go and put it on sale today. I can't wait. Uh, but back in 1992, didn't exist. Yeah. And there's, there's, I don't want to spoil much of the book for people because it's a really fantastic read. There's also the 16 weeks of summer campaign and the welcome to the next level campaign. I don't want to spoil those too much, but if you had any, any memories of those you wanted to share, please feel free to do so. 
You know, 16, 16, weeks, of, uh, 16 weeks of summer brought to you by Sega Genesis, 16-bit. Um, you know, it, it was just ways to go and, and get people out to go and, and play the game because, you know, you might not be going into a Toys R Us or into a Babbage's or an electronics boutique and being able to see it, you know. Or you might only go there once a year. This was a way for, you know, to get people to actually get their hands on. Because we knew that once people saw Genesis and actually played a game, um, you know, we were on the way to going and, and converting them to being a Sega owner. Uh, so that, that was one of the things that we had done uh, for that. Uh, welcome to the next level. We were looking for just a great advertising campaign um, that would really, um, you know, talk about the Sega difference. Uh, and we um, met with a bunch of ad agencies, and, and you know, it, it goes into full depth into console wars about this. Uh, mm-hmm. And we saw a lot of great presentations. And, um, finally, you know, and, and we actually, there was one presentation we actually fell in love with and said this was it, uh, and didn't imagine that we could see anything better. And the last presentation was by Goodby Berlin Silverstein, uh, or Goodby Silverstein Partners, as they were known at the time. Uh, and, um, one, it was the best presentation we had ever seen. And then two, it was all wrapped around um, this um, campaign called Welcome to the Next Level and introduced the Sega Scream. Uh, and it was also the um, fastest, um, you know, video game commercial you had ever seen. Because, you know, I think in a, in a 30 second commercial, there was something like over 100 different cuts. Uh, and we actually had to go and do research to go and say, are people actually getting, you know, all the gameplay from it? And it was amazing. And it also helped us save money because we actually found out that we could run 15-second commercials, which are half the price of 30-second commercials. Um, and people were still retaining 90% of the information in a 15-second commercial than they'd get in a full 30-second commercial. So we were able to literally double our advertising budget just because of that ad campaign. Uh, but it was also a campaign that people loved, and you know, the Sega Scream uh, is, is um, iconic. Mm-hmm. And it is a really, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a really funny moment in the book, just uh, telling of the recording session for that. Um, <laughs> Wish I had been there. Yeah, right? I, I would love to hear all the alternate takes for that. Um, and it's pretty wild too it it took off so well that it actually I believe Sonic 3D Blast opens with that same sound Um, so but um, uh, moving outside of the the story itself Blake J. Harris the author of Console Wars he's also working on a documentary and this is going to become a movie uh, from Seth Rogen Um, when, when the project first started how did Blake, uh, did Blake go to Tom first and then come to you? Um, if you want to talk a little behind the scenes of the book itself. Sure. Uh, sure. Happy to do it. Um, you know, Blake, Blake does a great job telling the story of how he, you know, um, 
happened, his brother happened to buy him a Sega Genesis system uh, a few years ago, and it rekindled all the great memories. And he went and said, you know, um, there's got to be a history of the video game industry. And he went into a Barnes and Noble and said, you know, where's your video game history section? And the clerk just looked at him as if he was crazy and, you know, directed him over to all the cheap books. Uh, and they had to play game guides. And it was like, no, that's what you uh, uh, didn't want. And he, and he looked and, you know, there, there were some books that were talking about history, but he had, you know, a different idea because it was, you know, he knew about the console wars. He had lived the console wars. Uh, and and he was wondering about the people behind it. And the great thing about Blake is Blake is incredible at research. And, you know, the first name that came up on his radar screen was Tom Kalinske, and he managed to get a hold of Tom. And, um, you know, we do lots of interviews each year. Uh, I shouldn't say lots, but we probably do about five, six, seven Um and so Tom was very gracious, and they got to talking and talking and talking and talking. And this went on for a few months. Uh, and Tom was impressed by, you know, Blake's understanding and the research that he had done and the questions that he was asking. And, you know, had, Blake had written a sample chapter, and uh, Tom, I guess, found it interesting. Um, and one day I get an email from Tom that says, uh, I've given your contact information to this guy named Blake Harris, and he's writing a book. Uh, and the gist was, uh, he's the real deal, and I'm fully cooperating. Um, and that's enough for me. Uh, if if he passes Tom's muster, he passes mine. And you know, I, I started talking with him, um, and. Um, he really understood and had done the research um, and um, understood what the console wars were all about um, and had a lot of great questions for it. Uh, and then he started reaching out to lots of other, um, you know, Sega colleagues as well as, you know, Nintendo and also retailers and analysts um you know i think it's like over almost it's over 200 maybe even close to 300 interviews that he did mm-hmm. um and, and you know it was interesting because i was getting emails and calls from colleagues going you know who is this guy what do i tell him <laughs> uh and these were people who you know hadn't you know really done interviews or been interviewed before and it's like you know, tell them whatever you want. Tell them as little or tell them as much. Um, you know, we're, but Tom and I are, are working with him, and you know, the Nintendo people are telling their stories too. So you know, we're excited about it. Um, did we, you know, um, you know, ever think that you know, um, a major publisher such as Harper Collins uh, was going to pick it up? didn't know. And we were really excited when that happened. And then Blake wanted to do this documentary. And we, uh, he uh, recorded the interviews last fall for that. uh, And is is working on putting that all together. And then um, lo and behold, Scott Rudin, who was the producer behind, you know, little projects like the social network and Moneyball, 
uh, as well as tons of, tons of your favorite TV mm-hmm. programs. And Seth Rogen uh, decided to buy the rights, and Sony Pictures picked up the distribution. Um, and um, it's it's just amazing how this has all come together. Uh, am I a little scared about you know seeing myself on the big screen being played by somebody else? Sure. Uh, you know it's going to be interesting. Who's going to play me? Who's going to play Tom? And, Who do you, you think? Know, was, uh, uh, no comment. No comment. It's, uh, <laughs> you know it, it, it's interesting. I was I was uh, at dinner with Tom Kalinsky and his wife last night, and 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 we just keep joking uh, about you know the casting. Uh, and so it's, it's, um, what it is, is what it is. And, you know, we can't wait for, uh, that, but, you know, we can't wait for May 13th when console wars is actually on sale. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm excited to hear that, you know, you like, um, the book. I, I think it is a really great read, uh, which is why, you know, we're happy to talk about it. Um, you know, it, it tells the good, it tells the bad. Um, you know, it shows some warts that are there, but it shows, um, you know, from the Sega side, you know, virtually everyone says it was the best time of our lives because we literally had a ball. Um, and we're really excited that people loved, you know, playing the games that we distributed and put out and worked on. Um, and, you know, it's also a kick that, you know, you remember the Sega Scream and Genesis does what Nintendo don't and welcome to the next level, as well as still love talking about, you know, Sonic and Toe Jam and Echo and all the rest of the great games that we did. It's, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, I finished the book yesterday and it's, it's, I haven't read anything like it before. I, you can read Wikipedia entries. Our own site has a, uh, Sega Wiki, Sega Retro, and there's over 7,000 entries on Sega alone. Wow. But but reading it in this sort of perspective where it's from Tom's point of view, there's a lot of really, there's emotion to it. You know, there was that um, that story about the young girl, uh, family friend, um, that mm-hmm. I, I'll, I'll leave for readers of the book, but it's really touching. Um, it's just, it gives a lot of soul to Sega, and it really makes both yourself and Tom kind of Sega personified, which really, as a Sega fan, feels really good to read these stories about these people who made things happen. Sure, we saw the commercials, we played the games, but to see the effort that goes into it, the um, the overnight work that you guys put in when the, the price was dropping, <laughs> that that blew my mind. I, I work marketing, and I've, I've yet to have a time that that happened. We've had some rush jobs, but Creating a campaign overnight is something I, I hope I never do, but if I do, this book will serve as inspiration for knowing that you can do it. Um, it, it was that, you know, I'll, I'll let everybody else go through all the details, but what we had to go and pull off, and it was just such a fun night and a great night. And the next morning, we had everything 100% buttoned up, and no one knew that it was something that had just done overnight. Uh, and it was just a, you know, half a dozen people just doing whatever we had to go and do. And we were happy that we didn't have to sleep because it was well worth it. Uh, but that's what you do. You do whatever it takes. Um, and um, it was worth it. 
absolutely. We have a few there. reader questions. Oh, I'm sorry. I, sure. We have, a few, we have a few reader questions for you. I know there, there were so many, but we picked through them, and I think we picked the best. The ones that we didn't ask, the book definitely answers them. So people should okay. pick this up well, on the third. And the, the other the other thing I want to say about the book while I was there, yes. what I also two things. One, you're absolutely right. It's the people behind it, and that's what Blake wanted to do, which was tell the story of. It's not just you know. The, he wanted to tell the story of the people behind it, and really has done that from both the Sega and the Nintendo side. But the other thing is, you know, I, I've I've read so much, you know, over the last 20 years about here's the story behind this, here's the story behind that, and there's so many urban legends, and people have just made up things, and we finally had the ability to correct the record, uh, and so you know now you know. The, the stories are really being told um, and, and the records being there. And you're also going to see things that have, you know, documents that have never, um, uh, you know, uh, seen the light of day. You know, one of the questions I know that someone sent in was why, why do, why does tales and miles, you know, why are there two names for one character? And as you see in the book, we answer that, but we actually answer it with the actual document that resulted in Miles Prower being named Tails. So you're you're seeing the actual historical document. Uh, yeah. It's funny to call call that story a historical document, but I guess that's what it is. It is so, now, most definitely. Oh, did um, you like yeah. that story, by the way? Oh, I love that story. <laughs> You know, and uh, as a kid when I played it, I, you you there are still remnants of it, so it definitely was. Not something that completely worked out, but you see Miles in there, and as a kid, I did not know what was going on, but I did yeah. know that it was Tails, and I knew that Miles Per Hour was a funny, punny name, but it definitely did not uh, stick with me like Tails did. Well, it's um, uh, that that their Tails may not have existed, um, and it, it, the book goes and tells uh, it was an interesting thing, but uh, it was amazing because uh, one of the developers on the Sonic team actually was brought to tears. Uh, so, uh, how's that for a tease for your listeners? <laughs> It'll make you cry. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell give me these. I'd love to hear these questions from your readers. Then, okay. Well, off, uh, how important was the UK market for Sega? Uh, UK was probably uh, you know I don't remember the exact numbers, but I believe the UK was probably the second biggest market after the US. Uh, Europe overall was the second biggest market over the U.S., and I believe that U.K. was number one. I think Germany was number two, and France was number three. I could be wrong, but that's what my memory says right now. But U.K. was definitely the largest in Europe. The other question is, uh, why did you change the mega uh, the name of the Mega Drive to the Genesis? Was it copyright reasons? And how do you feel about changing the name and picking the Genesis? Uh, it, was, it wasn't a copyright, it was a trademark issue. And there was a company in the US that made something like a, some kind of hard drive system that had trademarked uh, um, Mega Drive, and so we couldn't use it in the US. And that was actually the first thing that I did when I uh, joined Sega on February 23rd, 1989. Um, there were five names under consideration. One was Cyclone, 
kind of named after the roller coaster at Coney Island, and there were three others that I don't remember. And my first thing was I had to do some quick market research to find out what people liked and didn't like. Uh, my personal preference was Genesis. I thought it was the strongest of the names, um, and so did America. Uh, and what was more interesting wasn't that they just liked it, but what they remembered about it. Um, I, I remember one of the comments was um, in your forum was that was it about were people remembering you know the band Genesis? No, that actually wasn't something that really came up. Uh, the number one thing was Star Trek, the Genesis project, and mm. the next one, which was a close second, um, was literally the story of Genesis from the Bible. Uh, and the overall takeaway between those was it's all about a new beginning. Um, and that was great because that's really what this was. It was, a, it was a new beginning for Sega. It was a new beginning for video games. Uh, and so Genesis was a, really an easy choice from that point forward. Um, and quite honestly, I prefer Genesis over Mega Drive any day of the week. Uh, I just think it, it it's such a strong name. And, you know, even today, you know, look at all the companies that are, you know, naming things Genesis, you know, the Hyundai Genesis car. Uh, Weber, you can go and get a uh, Genesis barbecue grill. And there's so many others. It's, it's just a really strong name. Um, and it really, I think, helped to make a nice impact um, that, you know, Mega Drive, it feels a little techy. It, it's there. Genesis, it just, it, it's a nice approachable name. And I think, uh, you know, well, the results were there. It worked well for us. Oh, the next question was, uh, if you guys were inspired by the Cola Wars Pepsi advertisements in the 80s to do the console wars, uh, to do the tactics where you guys compared the Genesis with the Super Nintendo? Yeah, with a Cola Wars an inspiration, or it, it just happened to be taste test? Uh, you know, it, it, the, the Cola Wars weren't really a, an inspiration or, or one that didn't come to mind. Um, I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, Tom Kalinske gave me, you know, the two-word challenge. Uh, I, once again, we're getting back to the Pepsi challenge. He gave me the two-word challenge. Prove it. Prove that Sonic is better than Mario. And it's not just prove it to me, but prove it so that everybody in America, you know, knows from beyond a shadow of a doubt. Um, and, um, you know, the, the first thing was, was um, doing, doing the research to understand what people were, the head-to-head -head research to understand what do people really think about Sonic and what do they really think about Mario? Uh, and what do they think about Sonic versus Mario? So those were, those were parts about, you know, a fact finding mission. Uh, and what do Mario lovers, you know, love about Sonic and do they really prefer it? You know, I didn't go in expecting, you know, 80% of people to go and prefer it, especially with all the Mario lovers that we had seeded into the groups. Um, and, and then once we had that, that, you know, 80% of the people we had tested had chosen, um, you know, Sonic over Mario, 
it was just like, okay, what do we've got on our plate? And it's like, you know, here's Nintendo, Super NES is on the horizon. Uh, they're going to go and spend a ton of money uh, and drown us out in advertising. So what can we do that is bigger and better? And what can we do to go and take away, you know, you know, their big fanfare? And what can we go and do early? And we had done mall tours beforehand. I had, I had done a mall tour in 89 and 90, which was just about getting people to play Genesis. And it was, okay, those were, those were really good things. How do we go and take it to the next level? And how do we go and blunt the Super Nintendo launch? Um, and uh, for want of a better term, the taste test, the playoff between Sonic and Mario just seemed like a natural. Um, and quite honestly, as a, that was also an outgrowth of you know, what we did at CES where we had the two monitors. And that wasn't, we were asking people to go and do it. It was, you know, before you even play the game, if you just go and take a look at it, you know that you want Sonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you want to be able, you've never seen anything so fast. You want to go and be able to control it. And wow, that looks really cool. And that looks really beautiful. Um, and so I think that once we had done that for CES, um, the, well, while we were still planning that for CES, the taste test in the malls um, just was natural outgrowth. And it was like, here's what we have to go and do. And, and the great thing that I have to go and say was, you know, here's what you want to go and do. And it's like, we want to go to head to head, you know, against Nintendo and Mario in our booth. Um, and, you know, Tom Kalinske firmly believed in it. He thought it was a great idea. Uh, even though Japan probably uh, wasn't going to go and be too happy because it was, you know, competitive advertising, even if it wasn't an ad, it was in our booth. And then, you know, taking it to the next level with going and going on the road with the mall tour taste test. Um, You know, it, it, it was great to have just a fabulous supported team led by Tom Kalinske. Uh, behind us Uh, and you know and and the other great thing about it was um, we all kept adding ideas on how do you make this bigger and better and stronger Uh, so uh, the ideas were fabulous Uh, and uh, they worked which was the best part about it so it, it was definitely a team effort and we just had you know, a phenomenal team from Tom and uh, Shinobu Toyota and Paul Rio, uh, who are senior management, to um, everybody in the marketing group, to everybody in our PR organization. Um, it, it, we just worked with, you know, one constant goal, which was, um, you know, do whatever it takes uh, and let's go and come up. And it's, you know, you, you talked about how you love the scene in the book where we had to pull the all-nighter. Um, it was teamwork, and it was it was just a phenomenal team uh, of people um, who were just committed to doing whatever it takes uh, to go and win. 
Um, the, the next question was, uh, did Sega ever consider to re-releasing the Master System as an entry-level console, similar to the way uh, Atari rebranded the VCS as 2600 when they released the 5200 and the 7800? Let me give you a long-winded answer to this. No. Um, <laughs> you know, it it was um, we needed to we needed to keep our focus very very uh, clear. Um, we wanted you to buy a Sega Genesis system. We wanted you to buy a Game Gear. You know, we wanted you to have the best console. We wanted you to have the best um, portable system out there. And while there could be a market out there um, for a master system at a lower price, uh, it wasn't that large a market. And two, um, it would have taken our focus away Um and so we really, we really didn't go and focus on that. You know, the interesting thing was was that the master system was still very big in other parts of the world, um, and you know, the master system had a longer life in Europe than it did in the U.S. The master system had a really big life um, in Brazil, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, where they were selling things. Um, the nice thing about it was, you know, the master system, the Game Gear is very closely based upon the master system technology. So when we were doing games for Game Gear, we could easily do ports over to the master system, and therefore we were able to go and support those countries where the master system was still a, a major force. Uh, so they were they were getting great titles. Um, you know, they were able to go and get Sonic on the master system in other markets, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for the U.S., it, it just didn't make sense because we, we needed to focus our retailers' efforts, our sales efforts, and our marketing efforts uh, and be focused. And, you know, Sega lost some of the focus, and, and the book goes into that with, you know, how many platforms do you have? Thirty. You know, we added 32X onto it and Sega CD and Saturn coming quickly behind. Um, and, um, you know, it's uh, uh, less is more. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Were you around uh, during the time of this uh, when they were talking about the Sega Saturn? I was there as the initial development was being done on Saturn. Uh, so um, I knew about it. I knew what was under development for it, but I wasn't there for uh, the launch or the launch planning of it. Okay. Uh, the last question is, uh, if you could go back, what would you have changed and done differently? Hello? Uh, No, I'm here, and you're just making me think. Can't you hear the gears moving? Uh, You know, it's... um, 
I, I, I wish Genesis had a longer life because I, I think that there was still a lot of life um, in Genesis, and I think you know we um, um, shifted focus away from Genesis too early um, to go and, and to get onto Saturn. Um, and also, and, and I'll let, you know, uh, the people who read the book, um, there's an interesting story about, um, discussions between Sega and Sony. Um, that would have been a game changer. Mm. Um, but I'll, do you agree? You've read the book. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, uh, I definitely but, agree. But, uh, that that the video game business of today would probably look a whole lot different. Um, and um, you know, I, I, I wish uh, that was something that I would have liked to change. But uh, um, just just those chapters alone are, are worth reading. Absolutely. Um, oh, I um, had one last question, personal question. Sure. Absolutely. When you guys released games from Japan to America, you guys actually released quite a lot of the games. I'm surprised. Like um, one of my games that I used to like a lot, but I never understood. Uh, Fantasy Star had like a different cover on in the U.S. and it was and like the artwork didn't look anything like the game. What, is there a reasoning behind that? Like besides selling it, I guess more American looking cover. Wow! Yikes. Uh, I absolutely have no idea. Um, I didn't know you were you behind know, that. The well, no, that, that was actually something that I probably can say I was because when fantasy star two came out, I was the marketing department. Uh, so that would have been a decision I made and I don't know why. And I don't remember the Japanese version. Uh, and I don't know why we would have changed it. It's, uh, you know, and I can give you 22 reasons. It's possible that when they did the rights for the artwork, the artwork didn't include U.S. rights. Uh, it could be that I just didn't like the artwork uh, from Japan. Um, though we didn't, we we didn't necessarily though. Um, there had to have been a good reason, uh, because doing new artwork would have been expensive. Um, so there had to be a good reason, but I don't know what it was. Uh, and quite honestly, that those days, um, you know, cause we were just getting ready to launch Genesis. Um, and it was, it was a whirlwind. So that's one of the details, and I just unfortunately can't answer for you. Well, uh, in the coming weeks, we're going to be having um, Blake J. Harris on. He's actually going to be coming on release day on the 13th. The show is going to go live, so uh, that's going to be a very exciting discussion. Um, we also have Tom Kalinske scheduled for the 22nd of this month, and yep. I uh, don't know if I can make it through the interview without uh, passing out. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, I, I know Tom's looking forward. As I said, I was I was with Tom last night, and uh, you know I uh, I think he'll um, enjoy it. 
So I've enjoyed it. So congratulations oh, on reaching 60 podcasts. And thank you so much. Uh, all the best. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us, Al. We'd love to have you on in the future, but uh, until then, take care. Okay. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.